start reading in verse 8. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, hopefully there's one in, uh, in the rack in front of you. Feel free to pull that one out. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one with you. As I mentioned earlier, we're in this short series uh, just looking at these letters to the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, they're all unified in that they all are under pressure. Each one of these churches is under, is under pressure, different kinds of pressure, but pressure to compromise, to walk away from Jesus, to give in. Uh, and in that regard, we are under similar pressures, and, and the church of Jesus has always been. And Jesus has a word for them and for us. And so today we come to the second church, the church at Smyrna. Let's give our attention to God's word. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help in receiving it. Holy Spirit, we pray simply what Jesus says here, that you would give us ears to hear. That you would take... Your good word, and you would apply it to our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned last week uh, that these seven letters are something like report cards. And depending on uh, your performance in school, that phrase report card may, uh, may give you the heebie-jeebies. Um, but that's exactly, uh, or something like what these, what Jesus is doing for these churches, right? He's, he's telling them, uh, kind of where they are in progress before that grade becomes final, right? That's the, uh, depending on how you performed in school, that's what the report card did, right? When your, when your parents got that, I'm assuming parents still get report cards, I don't know. Um, but you, you would get that in and you would realize like, oh, I've got some ground to cover, right? I've got some things to make up. And so when we saw last week, when we looked at Ephesus at the Loveless Church, right, they were, they were scoring an A in truth, but an F in love. But what's interesting about this church, and there's only one other church, so there, of the seven churches, only two of them uh, receive all positives. Only two of them receive all A's, and one of those is Smyrna. There is no, Jesus has nothing negative to say to these people. Which is ironic, because if you, look at, if you look on the surface, things don't look good for them, right? Um, I wonder if you would close your eyes and imagine for me, what does the blessed life look like? 
What is the blessed life? How would you describe it? What's the picture? What are the pictures that come into your mind's eye? Right? If you were going to say, I am enjoying God's smile, what would your life look like? I imagine very few of us would use words like tribulation and poverty and suffering. In fact, if we were experiencing those things, we would think, I must have done, done something wrong. Right? God is not happy with me. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, a, a Scottish pastor and teacher, um, says that if he were writing this letter to Smyrna, it would be a letter of condolence. It would be, I am so sorry. But Jesus' tone with them is, you're doing great. Keep it up. Keep going. Right? Because as we'll see, and as we've said before, God's ideas, God's economy, God's kingdom are often, they often look upside down to us. Now, of course, God's kingdom is not upside down. It's right side up. We're the ones who are upside down. But what we're going to see is that these people who are, who have the enemy's boot on their neck, so to speak, they are the ones who are enjoying God's smile. He has nothing negative to say to them, which is a, a beautiful thing. Here's what I think we can learn from this letter to the church in Smyrna. And it's this, that Jesus' approval far outweighs any rejection we face from the world. Jesus' approval far outweighs any rejection we face from the world. And that's simply a shorthand way of saying what Paul says in Romans 8.18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what Jesus uh, is telling these people. It's what he's telling us. So two questions I want to ask this morning. One, what kind of suffering are we talking about? What does, what does this suffering look like? And then two... How does Jesus bring comfort in the midst of that? How does Jesus Jesus comfort us and them? So what kind of suffering are we talking about? Zach mentioned earlier, right, that that the fall brings us into an estate of sin and misery. So you have these two broad categories. Uh, I want to go a step further and kind of and put suffering. We can uh, if there's. Uh, let's, let's put three labels or three buckets on different kinds of suffering, right? The, the first one uh, is that generic misery. So this is, uh, this is aging, seasonal allergies, kidney stones, cancer, right? That's, that's bucket number one, okay? That's that kind of suffering. Bucket number two uh, are the consequences. We could, we could label this bucket consequences. Uh, this is what we face when we sin, um, the consequences we bring into our own lives. That's bucket number two. But then bucket number three, we could label persecution. Uh, and this is part of sin as well, but this is, this is uninvited suffering that comes to us because we name the name of Jesus. Because we're following Jesus, um, we receive suffering. And that's that's what the Smyrnan believers are facing. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, 
Um, that word tribulation, uh, oppression, pressure, right? They are being pushed. They are, they are the weak who are out of power, and those who are in power are pushing against them. They're experiencing poverty, likely a result of that tribulation. It looks like um, what's happened is they are being excluded uh, from the market. They are being excluded from the economy. They are being excluded because of their profession of Jesus. And we know from history that this really did happen and still happens today. That because they would not go along, um, because they would not honor Caesar as Lord, then they would be excluded. They would be told, like, all right, well, you can't be a part of the Stonemasons Guild. You have to, you, we're not, we're not, or, or it would just be the cold shoulder. We're just not going to give him any business, right? Uh, and so they are facing poverty, extreme poverty. The word is the poverty of a beggar. Um, and again, uh, I, I get a, an email from a group called the Voice of the Martyrs. It's a prayer email that comes in on a weekly basis. This is not an uncommon story. You read of people who um, maybe they're the first in their village to come to know Jesus. Uh, and, of co- and, of course, they're breaking with tradition and they're breaking with culture. Um, they're no longer worshiping the gods that everybody else in their village is worshiping. And what will happen as a result is that uh, they lose their home. Um, the village just pushes them out. Maybe their home is destroyed. Right? That's what these people are facing Jesus says that they are being slandered. Uh, People are saying false things about them. And the source of this slander, Jesus says, are those who say that they are Jews and are not. In fact, Jesus says that they... Now, the synagogue, right, is where the Jewish people gather to worship. And what Jesus says is that they, they are not a part of the synagogue of God. They are a part of the synagogue of Satan, who is the accuser. That's what the word Satan means, the one who accuses. So these slanderers belong to the chief slanderer, the chief accuser. Now, those are really strong words, and we want to be careful. But what does Jesus mean? These are ethnic Jews who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So they are ethnically Jewish, but they have rejected uh, that Jesus is the one foretold by their, their scriptures. Uh, he is, he is, they don't believe that he is the Messiah. And this is the hard word. So Jesus says they are not truly Jews. Now, that's what, what Jesus means is that you can be ethnically Jewish, but if you don't believe in the Son, if you don't believe in the Messiah whom God has sent, then you are not really Jewish, meaning you are not a part of the family of Abraham by faith, which fits with what Jesus says earlier in the New Testament when he is uh, being cornered by the religious leaders, by the Pharisees, he actually, and, and, and they're claiming their heritage. They're saying, no, 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 we're the sons of Abraham. And you, you may not know this, but in John chapter 8, when the Pharisees say, no, we're the sons of Abraham, do you know what Jesus says to them? No. If you were the sons of Abraham, you would believe in me. 
You are, you are the sons of your father, the devil. That's hard. Paul says in Romans 2, verse 28, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. What Paul is saying is, to be truly identified as God's people is to believe in Jesus. Not simply to bear an ethnic marker, but to believe on Jesus. So Jesus is the dividing line for everyone. But it would also appear that the government is involved in this persecution because more, more suffering is about to come. They're about to be thrown into prison, and the likely outcome of that prison sentence looks to be death. What kind of, what, what, why this, right? So, so it would appear that um, the local Jewish people are, are slandering these believers. They're, they're falsely accusing them. That's causing Rome to get involved. Smyrna was one of the first cities uh, in the province of Asia, modern-day Turkey. In fact, uh, this city today is called Izmir. But it was one of the first cities in the Roman Empire to worship Rome, to build a temple to Rome, and later to the emperor. Right? So this is political religion. This is idealizing Rome. Right? They were, what they were doing was celebrating the peace and unity of Rome by deifying it, and then deifying its leader. And so if you were a good Roman citizen, your Creed was Caesar is Lord, which Christians could not say. They could not be good Roman citizens, and so that's where persecution comes in. In fact, those who followed Jesus uh, in the early centuries, in the first and second centuries, were actually called atheists because they didn't worship any of the known gods who were available in the Roman Empire, right? They wouldn't worship Caesar. And they wouldn't worship any of the other Greek or Roman gods around. So they were called atheists because they worshipped a man named Jesus. It appeared as if they were worshipping no gods at all. So these Jesus followers are being falsely accused, are likely facing prison time. At least some of them are. They're being shut out of trade and commerce. They're being pushed into poverty. So, so you can imagine, can't you, the pressure to cave. I mean, it's one thing to suffer yourself, but to, to see your children going hungry, uh, for, for there to be a police officer at the door saying, hey, it's time to go, right, ready to cart you off to prison. And all, all it would take is just a, just a little bow of the knee, just, just words, really. Caesar is Lord. I mean, that's just three simple words. You can imagine the immense pressure they would feel. Right? Can't, can't you just go along to get along, as the saying goes? So how does Jesus comfort them in the midst of that pressure, in the midst of that persecution, in the midst of that suffering? To all of that, Jesus says... Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Jesus, that sounds really nice. What? You're going to have to give me a little more. What is, 
what is Jesus' call to not be afraid? What does he, what does he root that in? What does that come with? Well, there are several ways that Jesus comforts us. First, look at verse 9. He says, I know. I know. Not like, I know that my kids have soccer practice at four, but like, I know. I know exactly where you are. I know exactly what you're facing. I know. I'm not absent. I am not distant. I am right here with you. And then he also says this. He tells them to remember what they have. Right? He says that, I know your poverty... But then it's like he can't even wait. He says, but you are rich. Sure, you may be materially poor, but you are spiritually rich. This recalls what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. That to follow Jesus is to lay up treasures in heaven that cannot be destroyed, that cannot be stolen. It is to invest your life in a way that nobody can ever take it away, right? Where no one can steal it, where moth can't destroy it, where rust can't destroy it. Jesus says, you have that kind of treasure. You are rich. And then he says this. Not only does he know, not only do they have spiritual wealth that cannot be touched by their enemies, cannot be taken away, wealth that lasts forever. But he also says, this is a test. Remember, uh, maybe when we were kids, uh, afternoon cartoons would often get interrupted. I think it was like once a month with an annoying beeping sound, and then the thing would scroll across the bottom that this is a test of the emergency broadcast. Right? This is only a test. That's what Jesus says. This is only a test, and it's temporary. Right? Look at, um, look at verse 10. He says, uh, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So we see who's behind this. It's God's enemy, the devil. But then Jesus says this, that you may be tested and for 10 days. So that, that 10 days symbolizes a definite period of time that will come to an end. Jesus says it's temporary. All right, it's not... It won't last forever. This test is temporary. And what that also tells us is that Satan's attacks are simply tools in God's hand. Right? That whatever the devil may have in mind with this attack against this church, that God simply is using it as a test. What do we mean by a test? Well, you test something to prove that it's genuine. Right? To prove that it's true. So you can tell me that you have mastered double-digit multiplication. But how do I know? I can take your word for it. Or I can give you a test and see how you do, right? I can prove the validity of your assertion. I test you. Jesus is reminding us uh, this. uh, In fact, if you want to understand or at least begin to understand the book of Revelation, the the part of the Bible you really want to know is the Old Testament. This book cites and refers to the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. Um, This mention of a 10-day test is reminiscent of Daniel, chapter 1. You may know the story of Daniel. 
uh, he and his three friends, along with others, were captured when Babylon destroys Jerusalem. They're carried into captivity, and they begin training to serve uh, for King Nebuchadnezzar, right? But part of their training is they have to eat the king's food, right? And to eat from the king's table means that you are fellowshipping with the king. You are one with the king. You are his man. And Daniel and his friends say, we can't eat that food. It would defile us because of our Jewish faith. And so they're under this pressure. Will they conform? Will they concede? I mean, what, what is it? It's just a little food. Surely we'll be fine, right? We could save our lives. And in essence, they're reject, in rejecting the king's food, they're rejecting the king. And that is not a good idea when he's the most powerful person in the world, Right? And so what Daniel does is he devises a 10-day test where he and his friends eat only vegetables. And then at the end of 10 days, they see who looks better. Um, And in that way, God gives favor to Daniel and he and his friends pass the test. Well, Jesus is saying, hang in there, just like Daniel. It's a definite period of time, and I'm using it to test your genuineness. I'm using it to test your validity. And then he says this, right? He comforts us by saying that he knows. He comforts us by saying that you have spiritual wealth that no one can touch. He comforts us by telling us that this test is temporary. And then he says this. He tells us to look to your reward. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, the, the... the main part of the city of Smyrna was on top of a hill, and its skyline from the distance looked like a crown sitting on top of the hill. So it was commonly called the crown of Smyrna. Well, here, these Christians are being rejected by their city. They're being rejected by one crown, but Jesus promises to give them another. He says, even if you're rejected by this crown, I will give you the crown of life. And this crown refers to the wreath, the laurel wreath that athletes would wear when they finished the race. Athletes who'd won the race would receive the crown. Jesus says he'll give the crown, offers the victor's crown to those who remain faithful. In other words, Jesus says, it may look like you're losing but you're really not. You may look like a loser to everyone around you, but if you have me, you're really not. And that's the upside-down victory of God's kingdom, that the conqueror is not one who wins by strength, not in God's kingdom. He's not one who wins by his own resources. He's the one who lays down his life. But there's one final comfort that Jesus gives. In fact, it's the greatest comfort, and it's the comfort to, to which all of the other comforts belong. It is, the, it is the source of all comfort. The greatest comfort that Jesus offers the suffering church is himself. Look at verse 8. He calls himself the first and the last. This is Old Testament talk. This is how God identifies himself in Isaiah 41 and 44 and 48. And usually in conjunction with those identifications, he says, do not fear. Right? 
It means he is the eternal one. He is the almighty one. The one who remains when all the other would-be rulers and tyrants and slanderers are dead and gone. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I'll be around when everybody else is in the grave. That's the guy you want on your side, is it not? When the enemy's boot is closing off your windpipe, you want that guy. You want the guy, you want the Almighty who's going to last forever. But he doesn't stop there. Notice what he says next. He is the one who died and came to life. Jesus says, You don't have to be afraid of death. I've already beat it. Not only am I the everlasting Almighty One, but I've actually walked the road you're walking. I've been down into the death you're facing, and I've defeated it. I have come back to life. I am alive forever. Friend, that's the real hope of Christianity. Jesus doesn't simply offer a good way to live your life. He's just not another option on the menu of good life choices. He is life itself. He is tasted and defeated death, and he brings new life to everyone who trusts in him. Just as we sang earlier, right, the the hope of Christianity is not that you have a hold on Jesus, but that he has a hold on you. And if he has a hold on you, then there is absolutely nothing to fear. And so as Martin Luther wrote, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body, they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Do you know that kind of hope this morning? Do you you have something? I imagine there's not many things like this in the world, but what is that one thing in your life that if you had it, you would lose everything else and it would be okay. If you have Jesus, he's the one thing. He's the one thing that if you have him, then you can stand to lose everything else because you're going to get it all back in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that our suffering, even uninvited suffering that comes from without, from other people threatening us, God, that it is not in vain. It is not wasted. There, there, are, there is no wasted suffering with you, Lord. Would you apply this word to our hearts? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As Steve comes up to lead us in a time of prayer, I want to invite each and every one of you. We have two prayer meetings each week. One happens on Tuesday mornings at 9.30, and then one happens before our service at 10 a.m. And if you want to know where the the boiler room of the church is, the, the greatest activity of the church, it's right there. It's in, the, it's in those prayer meetings. So I invite you to uh, take the time to, to come to one of those. And if neither of those times fit, Organize your own prayer group.
Let's pray together. Father, we sin and fall short of your glory and purpose. Oh, thank you for your patience with us. Lord, we pray for the Holy Spirit to fill and energize us. Lord, we pray for open ears and hearts to receive you and your word from our pastor this morning as he's spoken to us. Lord, we pray for all spiritual wisdom and understanding to be ours. Lord, we pray to be filled with the knowledge of your will. Lord, we pray for healing for us that are afflicted. Lord, especially for Neil Vinson this morning. We pray that you would comfort his family, that you would um, bolster his strength to endure chemotherapy. Uh, Lord, that you would uh, give him endurance for the pain that he suffers now. And Lord, that you would, uh, as we've learned this morning, uh, offer him and his heart that return to you and endurance that he'll receive through his love for you. Lord, we pray that that love for you and each other would be a part of us, be a part of this body. Lord, we pray for rest and peace for those that are in anxiety this morning. We pray that you would bring comfort that only you can bring. Lord, we pray for steadfast faithfulness that matches your faithfulness to us. Father, we pray for our nation. We lift it up to you uh, in its lostness, its its wanderings, uh, as it's lost its mooring and foundation in Christ. And we lift up our leaders for your heart and mind to be there in revival to ignite this land. Father, we pray for you to be with all those that are serving you in a foreign place, in a place that they don't call home except through you. Uh, Especially this morning, we pray for Jackie and Gary Burnett uh, for power and strength uh, to be there that is yours as they pour out their lives in Medellin, Colombia, offering Christ to that nation. And Lord, we pray for that nation. We pray for Colombia this morning, uh, suffering uh, with violence and poverty and crime, uh, confused and lost from the truth of your word. Uh, Lord, struggling just to um, continue uh, in hopelessness. And Lord, as uh, Gary and Jackie bring you to them, uh, we pray that those people groups like the uh, 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 Ameritans, that subculture that within Colombia that has 37 languages uh, with no translation of the New Testament, 17 without even the, any Bible at all, Lord, we pray that you would bring your word to them, that they might feed upon it and be nourished. Father, um, go with us this week. Allow us to be your salt and light. Lord, bring uh, your heart into our hearts uh, that we might 
continue to grow in the image of Christ. And we lift you up in thanksgiving and praise for this this body and for our church and uh, for our lives that you've given us in Christ's name. Amen.